Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and I thank you for listening. My guest today is Sami Hamdi, editor-in-chief of the International Interest. In our conversation today, we'll take a look at the Biden visit to Jeddah as the dust settles. Always a pleasure to have you on our podcast, Sami. Thank you for having me on. Let me begin, uh, Sami, by asking you, you know, there's been this predictable outcry about the Biden MBS fist bump. But I wonder, what was your initial response when you saw that picture of the two of them? I think my initial response is that uh, Biden did not shake Mohammed bin Salman's hand, that it was a very awkward meeting between the two of them in which uh, perhaps Mohammed bin Salman, who didn't allow U.S. journalists uh, to be present during the fist bump, apparently U.S. journalists had to remain on the bus and only Saudi journalists were allowed to, to, to see it or take photos of it. I think what what we noticed was that bin Salman sort of trying to display the sense of vindication, but perhaps that it did not turn out in the manner he had hoped with regards to the manner in which Biden actually greeted him. So I think that while the picture itself looks quite damning, I do think that the pictures that came later, which is bin Salman smiling with Biden and walking with him, look worse than the fist bump. I think the fist bump does reflect at least a sense from Biden that he did not want to make this visit. He did not want to see bin Salman. He did not want to make these concessions. He did not want to rehabilitate Mohammed bin Salman and that he's been forced into doing so. A bit of a, a, bit of a fig leaf then. I think so. And, and, and I think that the reality is that while there is this sense of, uh, uh, you know, this idea of a spectacular humbling of a U.S. president, I do think that it is very important to note that Biden spent more than six, seven months pursuing every alternative possible before visiting Mohammed bin Salman, including inviting the Emir of Qatar to Washington to ask for extra gas to supply to Europe, and including sending, sending Antony Blinken to Algeria in a bid to try to get Algeria to pump more gas into Europe in order to ensure that gas prices would not affect the stand he's trying to take against Russia, but also perhaps with that, with that extra gas, there might be some sort of decline in gas prices or even cause some sort of division within OPEC through which that might help him to pressure Saudi Arabia. Neither Qatar were willing to abandon the OPEC plus uh, line. Algeria were not willing to do so. Saudi Arabia sent Faisal bin Farhan, the foreign minister, to Algeria soon after Blinken's visit, almost as if sending a message that Algeria cannot be convinced to operate outside of OPEC with regards to gas. So I do think that this this fist bump in particular, as opposed to a handshake, as opposed to a warm greeting, the fact that bin Salman did not greet Biden in the airport. I know many people have suggested that it was a slight on Biden, but I think that it may well be that Biden is the one who insisted as a condition for him coming that bin Salman does not arrive to meet him at the plane in order to try to temper the extent to which this does damage. I think that with all things considered, the fist bump, not only does it reflect a sense of victory for bin Salman, but certainly that victory is tempered by the image of Biden looking very reluctant and fist bumping as opposed to shaking hands. Mm, okay. Now, the, the official Saudi position on normalization with Israel, which was on Biden's agenda, is that it won't happen without the two-state solution. How much credence do you put in that official Saudi position? 
I think whenever any of the Arab states or indeed the regional states talk about a two-state solution, I think that's more a protocol statement than a sense of any genuine position on the part of these states regarding the issue of Israel. The second point that's worth noting is that normalization of ties or the normalization agenda was not the intention of Biden when he came to visit Saudi Arabia and was more a topic that was touted in order to temper the reality of the visit, which was to go and plead with Mohammed bin Salman regarding gas prices. The reality is that Saudi Arabia has already been normalizing ties without uh, any encouragement from Biden. We've seen Israeli sports teams uh, participate with, uh, in the kingdom, in sports uh, competitions within the kingdom. They've entered with Israeli passports. We have reports of Israeli businessmen going back and forth from Riyadh. We have this latest controversy of an Israeli journalist inside the holy city of Mecca and inside the holy city of Medina publicly taking uh, photos. In other words, Bin Salman has already been normalizing ties. Even the opening of the airspace that Biden touted as a victory, the airspace was already open for some routes for Israel. Uh, Bin Salman had already opened up his airspace to Israeli airlines. And what's happened here is just an expansion of the routes that Israeli airlines are able to take. All these indicate that Biden's uh, touting of normalization or indeed the talk of Saudi normalizing ties with Israel has nothing necessarily to do with Biden's visit, but that Biden jumped on an already unfolding phenomenon in order to temper the disgrace or the humiliation, disgrace might be too strong a word, but the humiliation of having to go to a Saudi crown prince, go back on everything you said about him regarding being a pariah and pleading with Bin Salman for gas prices, knowing that Bin Salman might not even give you the relief you're looking for. You know, I'm curious, Sami, because it's clear that uh, Mohammed bin Salman, you know, wants to move forward as quickly as possible on normalization. He looks at what's happening, the gains that the UAE is making vis-a-vis -vis Israel, and he'd like to partake in that. But what about ordinary Saudis? Where is their position on this? What do they think about the Palestinian cause? Is this somebody he can just drive through uh, at, at any point of his choosing, or is it something he has to move very carefully on? I think it's important to note that normalization of ties with Israel that cannot take place in any democratic state in the Middle East. If there was true democracy, there would not be normalization of ties primarily because the overwhelming public opinion remains heavily in favor of Palestine and heavily uh, with the sense that Israel is an apartheid regime that has colonized Palestine and that in a region which only 60, 70 years ago secured its independence, Palestine is seen in this light, this idea of it being a liberation movement. I do think that when it comes to the realities of normalizing ties with Israel or pursuing normalization of ties, I think that the, it's, it's generally seen in a more real policy or pragmatic sense, building on what the former Qatari Prime Minister Hamad bin Jassim said in 2018, in which he stated, quote, when Arab states talk to Israel or get close to Israel, it is not because they like the Israelis, it is because they believe that it is the key to the White House and the Congress. And in this context, I think that this is the reason why perhaps there is a sort of uh, a tempering of the anger regarding normalization of ties. Remember, Morocco normalized because it wanted uh, U.S. recognition of its sovereignty over the Western Sahara. UAE normalized in order to get one up over Qatar, which was the country that had the most ties with Israel until UAE normalized ties officially. UAE normalized ties with Israel in order to have that exert more influence over the White House to temper Biden antagonism and also to ensure that it remains the primary lobbying power in Washington. And bin Salman, when we look at the visit of Biden to Saudi Arabia, 
I believe that this is one of the fruits of his promise of normalization. The idea being that the Israelis were lobbying in Washington. They were saying to Biden that bin Salman is promising normalization. Don't alienate him. Don't make him a pariah. Stop antagonizing him. Please go and appease him because the bigger picture here is about us normalizing ties with Saudi Arabia, which is a bigger prize than UAE and Qatar. And I think this is why when Biden talks of Israel, when he went to Tel Aviv, there was no talk about restoring a peace process, but instead Biden sought to affirm that his foreign policy is rooted in securing the security of Israel and that he's prepared to do whatever it takes in order to get that. And that, of course, means ceding to Israeli desires or preferences to see bin Salman in power, to see bin Salman supported in the hope that he will eventually normalize ties. But in direct answer to your question, the people are against normalization. But when have the people ever really been taken into account when it comes to these decisions? I wonder... Um what you make of uh, MBS chiding Biden about the killing of the Palestinian American journalist uh, Shireen Abu Akleh in response to uh, his comments, Biden's comments about the killing of Jamal Hashoji, because Biden made a great play of saying, look, I brought it up. I said, you know, uh, we, we do hold you responsible. I was I was firm on that issue. And the Saudi response was, I would say, almost contemptuous. I think, look, the, the reality is, Bill, that while it's true that in Western press or in Western media, there is often a focus on human rights, discussion of human rights, there is a sort of accepted sentiment that somehow the US is a defender of human rights. No one in the Middle East, no one in the region, whether it be the farmer in the depths of the countryside in Tunisia to the highest policymaker in Riyadh, no one believes that the US is committed to human rights or that the US is an actual defender of human rights in the region. In fact, they all believe the opposite, that the US is the facilitator of a system that encourages the abuse of human rights. And this is why when bin Salman replied to Biden and said Shireen Abu Akhla, the reaction in the region was not necessarily one of uh, how dare bin Salman say this, but more one of touche. Bin Salman, that was a, a, a very good response uh, to a US president to who, when he was vice president, uh, oversaw the recognition of Sisi's coup in Egypt and his massacre in Rabah and the sweeping imprisonment uh, of the opposition. He oversaw the, the chaos, the descension into descending into chaos of Libya. Uh, he's silent or rather not doing much with regards to the coup that is unfolding in Tunisia. He's preserving the military council uh, in Sudan and is not necessarily pushing for uh, elections. Uh, he's ready to make a deal with Iran to recognize the roaming militia in uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, uh, and uh, Yemen. The idea here being that Biden's policy, or indeed the US policy, has never really been one that is committed to human rights in the region. Having said that, though, there is a saying in Arabic, that when someone says something that is true, but for the wrong reasons, bin Salman may have chastised uh, Biden over Shireen Abu Akhla, and the whole region would have applauded had it not been bin Salman who said it, bin Salman himself, who is one of the most uh, consistent abusers of uh, human rights. But I do think that what bin Salman highlighted, and if we take bin Salman out of the picture, he highlighted the reality that everybody in the region believes, which is that the assertion that Biden or indeed the US is somehow a guarantor of human rights has never been the case. And that when he comes to the region, that the visit that he made to the region was more the US removing its makeup and revealing its true face, as opposed to some sort of concession that Biden has made on human rights that have never really been upheld by any US administration in the region. Mm.
Now, MBS has been courted by Macron, by Johnson, uh, by Erdogan, uh, and now by Joe Biden. How important are these visits by world leaders to Mohammed bin Salman's standing domestically? I think that the reality is that domestically, bin Salman's standing is rooted in the climate of fear that he has created, in which even the slightest amount of dissent means that you disappear into his prisons. I don't think bin Salman uh, is necessarily worried about his standing. I think he's given up on trying to win over the people and is more concerned with establishing an iron grip authority that is tempered somewhat by the more hedonistic reforms that he's introduced with regards to nightclubs and uh, raves and bikini beaches, in which he perhaps seeks to decorate this iron chain that he's established in Saudi Arabia, in which people are able to let their hair down and dance themselves into a hedonistic apathy that allows him to continue to rule unopposed and without any particular dissent. Having said that, I think that bin Salman is less interested in his standing domestically and more interested in his standing internationally. And I think that's what these visits have really augmented or really improved or really uh, 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 helped to repair the idea that for all the talk about isolating bin Salman, Macron found himself needing bin Salman and going to Riyadh to talk to him about Lebanon and to talk to him about potential weapon sales. Boris Johnson felt the need to go to Riyadh to talk to him about oil price. Erdogan, who antagonized him for years and who rivaled Saudi Arabia and threatened to bring down the crown prince with the Khashoggi case, Erdogan found himself going to uh, bin Salman to plead with bin Salman for investments and to ask that bygones be bygones. The idea being that for whatever people may think about human rights, in this current global order, it is pragmatic economic interests that take priority and that peace and reconciliation is not built necessarily on human rights and justice, but on economic prosperity. And Bin Salman remains very relevant in this particular global order. And this is why when Biden found himself between rising gas prices and a decline in domestic polls, when Biden calculated the upcoming midterm elections, his conclusion was that the Americans will punish me for gas prices, but they won't punish me for neglecting human rights. Americans will punish me for making a hole in their pockets, but they won't punish me for abandoning the issues of human rights abroad. And this is where the whole the maxim comes in. It's the economy stupid. The idea being that for Biden, what matters more in American elections, what matters more to the American electorate is the economic gains, is the economic prosperity. And there can be no compromise on that for the sake of human rights. And if Biden has to choose, the democratic system in America is designed in such a way that Biden comes to a conclusion that let's discard the human rights because what matters is the economy. So bin Salman, in this current system, in this uh, global order that is built on economic cooperation and prosperity as the, as the definition of success, I think that bin Salman remains very valuable. And that's what these visits demonstrate, that bin Salman is a very valuable partner. And whatever he does on the human rights issues, nobody can isolate him because we need him for economic prosperity. We need him to ensure that we continue to win elections. We need him because he can still impact the pockets of ordinary American citizens and European citizens. So it's better to keep some sort of relation and keep some sort of appeasement in order to ensure that we continue to win these elections and continue to appease the electorate. Well, let me ask you this, Simon, then. Do you think that we will see Mohammed bin Salman in a, in a bit of a world tour soon, uh, showing up in London and Washington and Paris and, and Ankara? Uh, here I am. I'm back on the world stage, rehabilitated. These leaders have come to me and now I'm, I'm coming to them. 
I think that one of the things that makes it difficult or made the difficult visit for Mohammed bin Salman is that every time U.S. journalists were present at any conf a press conference or when they were within the vicinity of Biden or bin Salman, they kept shouting Khashoggi, they kept shouting pariah. The headlines were not focused on bin Salman's victory, but rather on the capitulation of Biden and the issue of human rights. And I think investors will be looking at these headlines and wondering to what extent this visit actually is an official rehabilitation of Mohammed bin Salman. Moreover, Biden made it absolutely clear that he had been strong-armed into this visit. While the official statements indicated that he was going to attend the summit of nine uh, leaders or, or, or to discuss regional issues, Biden equally uh, demonstrated through his bid to speak to Qatar, to Algeria, through his attempts to avoid going to visit, Biden demonstrated that he had been strong-armed into this visit, suggesting that if times get better for Biden, he will not necessarily continue trying to improve ties with Saudi Arabia. The point here being is that the message that bin Salman wanted to send to investors that it is now safe to do business here, there are no repercussions, Biden has given me the green light, was undermined by the journalist shouting Khashoggi, by the headlines about him being a pariah, and by the suggestion that Biden had been strong-armed and that Biden remains antagonistic towards the idea of warmer relations with Saudi Arabia. And this is why I think that when it comes to bin Salman and the potential of a world tour, bin Salman did a regional tour to Egypt, Jordan, Turkey, uh, in order to try to highlight his relevance regionally. But I do think that that doesn't necessarily mean that he will get a visit to Washington anytime soon, at least under a Biden administration, given that for Biden, uh, the reality is that he will not feel that he got enough out of his visit to warrant justifying a visit for bin Salman to Washington. Not that bin Salman will necessarily be too concerned about that. Bin Salman now will be monitoring the extent to which investors come to Saudi Arabia and invest in his projects. And this is why now it's a wait and see to see how the markets have reacted to Biden's visit, knowing that he'd been strong-armed and knowing that the headlines were all about human rights and not about bin Salman being a valuable partner. Now, Israel will undoubtedly be pleased uh, with the visit, but I, I wonder if it has been a boon for Tehran. Do you think the Iranian leadership look at it and see it as further evidence of America's decline in status and power in the Middle East? I think that what was significant is that the much-touted anti-Iran alliance that was supposed to be announced in Jeddah was not announced. And in fact, instead, we saw some sort of uh, implicit resistance to the idea of forming a military alliance, not from the Gulf states, uh, not just from the Gulf states, but also rather tempering uh, from even U.S. officials. And I think the reason being is that from Iran's perspective, Iran is well aware that Biden is not keen on this anti-Iran alliance, Biden is not keen on this military alliance, and Biden is still keen on this Iran deal. And this is why I think that the point of the anti-Iran alliance or Biden's agreement to help establish an anti-Iran alliance had less to do with actually countering Iran and more to do with seizing an opportunity through which to create an official framework through which Arab states could normalize communication, could normalize diplomatic and military ties with Israel. The point is to facilitate normalization, not to go after Iran. And I think this is why the Gulf states became very cool about the idea 
uh, of an anti-Iran alliance after it became abundantly clear to them that the anti-Iran alliance had nothing to do with containing Iran and that Biden appeared to be uh, still considering the prospect of an Iran deal and still considering the prospect of continuing negotiations. And we saw the UAE send a delegation soon after to Tehran to continue their own uh, improving ties with Iran in preparation for a potential Iran deal that will see Iran's military gains in the region entrenched and recognized and their militias incorporated into state institutions that give Iran control over those uh, state institutions, whether that be in Iraq or Yemen or Syria, uh, or indeed in or less to a lesser extent in uh, Lebanon. So I think that when it comes to Iran, when it looks at the the, the, the situation, Iran will not necessarily see a declining uh, U.S. power, albeit that is the case, but it will more be encouraged by the inability of the Gulf uh, neighbors of Saudi Arabia and the like to convince Biden to actually take a firm stance on Iran. But Iran will look at Israel's inability to convince Biden to take a firm stance uh, on Iran. And Iran will believe that in the midst of this division, its gains are safe, it's continuing to thrive, it's continuing to expand, it continues to have leverage. Saudi is chasing dialogue, UAE is chasing dialogue, Qatar is improving ties, it has good ties with Oman. Uh, Iran now is talking to Washington. Europe is very sympathetic to Iran and for an Iran deal. If you're sitting in Tehran, even if the headlines look uh, very doom and gloom, the reality is they all suggest that Iran is the rising power and that what's happening is that the regional powers are flailing and they continue to flail despite the talk of an anti-Iran alliance. Mm. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, the Israelis don't want the JCPOA uh, renewed. What about the Saudis? I mean, what is what is Mohammed bin Salman's position on JCPOA? Because are they on side with the Israelis or do they, as you suggest, want to move towards some sort of a rapprochement with Iran and perhaps the JCPOA is the road to do that? I think the Saudis are despairing with regards to Washington's approach to Iran. Saudis absolutely do not want to see the JCPOA restored. They do not want to see the Iran deal restored. On this, they are firmly in agreement with Israel. What is happening, however, is that Saudi Arabia appears to be resigned to the fact that it does not have enough leverage to force Washington to abandon the Iran deal. And it is therefore seeking to adapt to what is a very bad situation. And this is why we saw Saudi Arabia try to engage in some sort of dialogue. It's why we saw Saudi Arabia try to woo Muqtada Sadr in Iraq, who won the elections. Saudi Arabia tried to back Muqtada Sadr. Muqtada Sadr was resoundingly defeated by uh, the rest of Iran's allies. And now there's talk of Nouri al-Maliki, the former PM of Iraq, becoming prime minister once more. We saw Saudi Arabia try to woo Assad with the offer of normalization. The U.S. were having none of it, and Assad would not promise to relinquish his ties with the Iran. We saw Saudi Arabia, it's still flailing in Lebanon after having abandoned the Hariri, and now it's trying to look to the Christian uh, blocs to try to support them in order to push back against Hezbollah. But the Christian blocs have their own ties with France and their own ties with Iran. France and Iran, which tend to cooperate together in Lebanon, or at least always seem to come to some sort of understanding. I think that when Saudi Arabia at this moment in time is desperately trying to adapt to a situation that looks like it's going to get worse as far as Iran is concerned, particularly given that the Biden administration or indeed the UN 
continue to present initiatives on Yemen that seek to entrench the Houthis' gains as opposed to reversing them and reversing the coup that the Houthis embarked on in Yemen. So in terms of the Saudi, Saudi, Saudi Arabia, it's not that they want the JCPOA, it's not that they don't have a position on Iran, it's that they believe that they are on the verge of a disastrous situation and they are scrambling to adapt to it by trying to establish new alliances with regional powers. The Israelis, even though they are against the Iran deal, Benny Gantz and other officials have said that they're willing to accept the Iran deal in exchange for certain conditions. And I think this is what Biden is trying to achieve, trying to establish a new security structure via a new liaison between uh, the Arab states and Israel. The idea being that if they can establish some sort of alliance and normalization of ties, then that can act as a buffer towards Iran. However, I think that such tactics are naive uh, and they don't take into effect that Iran's power is not rooted in money and weapons, but rooted in its ability to resonate with a large uh, section of the region's population that are prepared to fight and commit everything for Iran, as we saw when Hezbollah decided to compromise its uh, soaring reputation with the Sunnis in favor of rescuing the Assad regime. So to, to put it quite shortly, to put it quite simply, I think the Saudis are in a desperate situation with regards to Iran and scrambling to find a way to adapt as they still believe Biden wants an Iran deal. You know, what you're describing to me Sami, sounds like a, a quite incoherent approach to foreign policy by Mohammed bin Salman, aside from the fact that he's trying to get foreign investment into the country to, to help pay for his grandiose projects. Is there a coherent Saudi foreign policy? I think that when you look at the challenges that bin Salman is facing or the Saudi Arabia, let's let's talk about Saudi Arabia as a state. I think the reality is that it is a particularly difficult time for Saudi Arabia. And while if you look at the if you look at the issues from the problems side, then it does appear incoherent. But bin Salman does appear to be forming a coherent foreign policy in terms of how to address it. And I think that has come about as a result of the shock from the international reaction to the Khashoggi case. What bin Salman has been embarking on now is trying to restore Saudi's role as a regional leader and re-entrenching the ties with neighboring states. So instead of looking to Europe and the US, bin Salman has spent the last two years really uh, re-entrenching his ties with the likes of Oman, with the likes of Kuwait, with the likes of Qatar, with whom he has booming ties now, which are improving rapidly. The idea being that if I'm a pariah abroad, let me at least establish strong ties domestically. And that has enabled him to have some sort of independence with regards to his dependency on the the UAE, the idea being now that he's able to talk to Qatar independently of the UAE. He talks to Oman independently of the UAE. He's resolved many issues with Kuwait regarding access to oil and uh, certain land disputes. We've seen bin Salman now reach out and manage to establish this presidential council in Yemen, which for all of its flaws certainly reflects a success on the part of bin Salman to ensure some sort of common ground regarding parties that absolutely hate each other. We've seen bin Salman now take a more considered approach towards Iraq, reaching out to Muqtada Sadr, supporting those who support Muqtada Sadr in order to really try to aggravate the divisions between Muqtada Sadr and the Iran bloc. We've seen that bin Salman has not made it difficult to reconcile with Erdogan 
as he now seeks to take advantage of that relationship to establish more military capabilities and order to and also to establish more technical expertise in order to prepare Saudi Arabia for an uncertain period. In other words, what we're seeing from Mohammed bin Salman is a policy that is now focused on reasserting Saudi capabilities uh, close to home regionally, focusing on what he can achieve as opposed to what he can't achieve. And the reality is, and while it deeply disappoints me to say this and hurts me to say this, and I may wash my mouth with soap a million times after saying this, the reality is that bin Salman is displaying statesman-like uh, politics. He's displaying an increasing understanding of statecraft in taking advantage of opportunities as they appear and turning a blind eye to, the, to areas where he cannot achieve anything. And I think that when you look at Saudi's relations today with neighboring countries, they are much stronger, there's much more economic development, there's much more exchange of expertise, there's much more exchange of information. And I think that Saudi Arabia today is stronger than it has been since Mohammed bin Salman came to power. Saudi Arabia in terms of foreign policy is pursuing something that is far more measured than we've seen in recent times. Mm. A man not to be underestimated. Uh, Sammy, thank, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Will. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Sami Hamdi, editor-in-chief of the International Interest. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to more than 80,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest newsletter features the very best of mean analysts, contributors like Sami. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources. Music